You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. Each opinion expresses the view that the advice given by the government to Her Majesty the Queen to prorogue Parliament from 9th September to 14th October was unlawful and that therefore the prorogation itself is unlawful. A look and or howl of primal despair at the week in Brexit and yet another reminder that the most ridiculous outcome is always the likeliest. My guests from Monocle's editorial floor will discuss this and the day's other news, including Russian President Vladimir Putin's response to disappointing municipal elections in Moscow, the scything down of the commuter newspaper by in-train Wi-Fi, and a wrap-up of the week in culture, including the relaunch of The Face and the secret of Succession's success. Greg, this is not Charles Dickens' world, okay? You don't go around talking about principles. We're all trying to do the right thing. Of course we are. But come on, man. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Now, the last few years on both sides of the Atlantic have regularly generated headlines which would have seemed well within living memory, like willfully preposterous satirical constructs, warnings of the kind of absurd circus in which we might find ourselves dwelling were we not extremely vigilant. We are where we are, however, and so this week have been forced to consider as if they are things which are actually happening. Prime Minister Boris Johnson being accused by Scotland highest court of lying to the Queen to facilitate the closure of Parliament to enable the United Kingdom to leave the European Union in circumstances likely to cause shortages of food and medicine, days-long delays at ports and civil unrest. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle 24's executive producer Tom Edwards, taking a break from his frantic rummaging through yellowing family documents for proof of Irish ancestry. Uh, Tom, that aside, how, how is your stockpiling going? Uh, I've got a lot of tinned goods, bottled water. Um, I've been bricking up the uh, entries and exit points from my home. Look, it, it is extraordinary that the, the Yellowhammer file, which is the government's own preparations for what they call something like reasonable worst case scenario. I'm, I'm not sure about the juxtaposition of reasonable and worst case. There. I tend to deal with unreasonable worst case scenario. Um, literally things like uh, short supply of ingredients, uh, price rises for f- uh, food and fuel, which will disproportionately affect those on low incomes. Disruption to supply chain lasting six months. Lorries waiting to cross the channel. What's extraordinary about this is you're familiar with that kind of language from governments Mm -hmm. normally to deal with things like natural crises, acts of God, acts of war. The idea this is something that our own administration is attempting to hasten is quite extraordinary. An attempt to hasten, we understand uh, they indeed are, if you look at, for example, the readings of one of the highest courts in the land, we should say, of course it is... This comes to the Supreme Court on Tuesday, this question. Uh, uh, this is Scotland's highest court, which claims that the prorogation, the shutdown of Parliament, was sought in a clandestine fashion. And I mean, it is extraordinary. If you actually read what uh, the, the likes of the Lord President, Lord Carloway, said... The judgment is a thoroughgoing wigging, I think is the technical term. Put shortly, I quote, 
prorogation mooted specifically as a means to stymie legislation regulating Brexit. It's in black and white. As you said, it will be before the Supreme Court early next week. Um, Johnson straight batted it, to use a current sporting <coughs> metaphor, denies lying to the Queen, denies that was his motivation. It's just in denial mode. I want to come back to that point you made about Yellowhammer and the idea that this is all stuff that does sound congruent with calamitous natural disaster or imminent invasion by Spain. Uh, And the fact that none of that is what is happening. This is something that the United Kingdom is doing to itself. It strikes me, and this may be the, the jaundiced view of an outsider enjoying the opportunity to feel superior, which is never something that we Australians pass up lightly where the British, specifically the English, are concerned. What's your view of the approximate percentage of your fellow English people who actually wants this? They want the yellow hammer thing. They want the shortages. They want rationing. They want queues. They want this weird purgative hardship. Um, Oh, that's a tough question. I wonder whether they are a small minority and they just make themselves heard more loudly than than anyone else. Um, There are several things about it that are interesting. One is that Michael Gove, who is, I guess, in charge of planning for No Deal. uh, (laughs) That's a reassuring thought right there, isn't it? If if you don't know that much about Michael Gove, get on the uh, Google machine. You're not going to sleep any easier in your beds. but they've been having these daily meetings uh, where they go through uh, the this current state of readiness or, or, or lack of. And interestingly, even though Parliament technically made leaving with a no deal illegal last week, uh, they're still having the daily meetings. <laughs> make, of, make, of that, make of that what you, what you will. Boris Johnson's been interesting. He, I, I, you couldn't say he's been keeping a low profile. He's been appearing on you know, warships, hospital he wards, is the prime schools, minister, all the rest fairness. of it. But he... I don't know if if you would agree with this, Andrew. He seems to me to be, to, to my to my limited understanding of his character, I think losing confidence in this. Even his usual bluster, the sheer bombast that we're used to seeing and hearing from him, it's ringing a little hollow. I wonder whether he is starting to figure that he could have made one of the great dreadful political miscalculations of this or indeed any time. Well, that would be some consolation if it does pan out that way. And obviously, as we've been discussing, there will be much more to come on that next week. Uh, By a a way of a spot of light relief before we let you go, uh, we did want to discuss uh, rubbish statuary of footballers, (laughs) which was raised in this morning's Monocle Minute. Um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is the next victim, as I understand it. Well, he's very much volunteered for this ignominy. Uh, don't forget, when he was playing... Zlatan Ibrahimovic, of all people, volunteering for some enormous, grandiose monument well, to well, himself. To this, that, that sounds incredible. People will recall that when he was still playing playing his trade for Paris Saint-Germain, the French capital, uh, beseeched to extend his stay there, he said, I'll stay if you replace the Eiffel Tower... I'm paraphrasing. If you re- <laughs> replace the Eiffel Tower with a statue of big old me. Uh, but now he's getting the full treatment in Malmo, his hometown. And I will for a second gives Zlatan some credit. He is a, a galvaniser of communities of sorts. Uh, <laughs> an interesting family heritage, of course, born and raised in Sweden, but he has both said and done some good things for community cohesion in Sweden, so I'm not going to be completely blinkered about this. However, yeah, an immodest man. <laughs> but uh, This is being revealed next month, and the, the purpose of my writings this morning was simply to caution that you may know Zlatan very well. You may be a member of his immediate family. You may not recognise the statue that's revealed because for some reason, 
footballing statues and sporting statues generally often just don't quite pass muster, and I don't know why that is. And you did raise the obvious example of this. It would be remiss of us not to mention it, though it does lack something without the the visual aid which you are currently I'm holding it here. If anyone hasn't yet seen the Mark I Cristiano Ronaldo bust from uh, Madeira Airport, you simply need to to check it out. I describe it as looking like a melted cake. (laughs) I I don't know how you can really do it just... It's the inane look on the face. One of the great things about it is... If you watch Ronaldo at the unveiling, I guess he was still so delighted to be venerated in this fashion that he didn't seem to look that bothered, um, which is quite funny. But it was it was replaced within 12 months, so make of that what you will. Immortalised forever, though, on the internet and well worth looking up. Tom Edwards, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Paris is dealing with major traffic jams and huge queues and delays on the metro, with 10 of 16 lines out of service today because of a transit strike. It is the largest strike since 2007 and the first large action against President Emmanuel Macron's plan to create a universal pension. Lawyers, airline staff and medical workers are also calling for more strikes to begin on Monday. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has introduced a new bill to Parliament that aims to further tighten gun laws. This says the country marks six months since the mass shooting in Christchurch. The new bill will include the creation of a registry to monitor and track every firearm legally held in New Zealand. It also tightens other rules for gun dealers and for individuals to obtain and keep a firearms license. And American photojournalist Charlie Cole, famous for the iconic photograph of the tank man during the Tiananmen Square protests, has died. The image of a Chinese office worker facing down a column of tanks became a defining image of the 1989 pro-democracy protests. The picture was published in Newsweek and won Cole the World Press Photo Award in 1990. Cole was one of four photographers that captured the scene and said he expected the man would be killed in front of him and felt he was responsible to record the event. Charlie Cole died in Bali at the age of 64. Those are the day's news headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Now, the many dementedly obsessive listeners to Monocle 24's Foreign Desk Explainer will already be up to speed on last weekend's local elections in Russia, which in Moscow in particular went awry, if not downright askew, for President Vladimir Putin and his United Russia Party. While it is not unusual for voters to use local elections to administer unto the national government a cautionary slippering, Putin has not been been philosophical in defeat. Russian police, in what may not be a coincidence, have raided more than 150 premises in 39 cities related to opposition figurehead Alexei Navalny. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's Paige Reynolds and Milken Charchoglian. Uh, Paige, he's not taking it well, Putin, is he? No, well, I think perhaps sometimes not just Putin, but the Kremlin as a whole are, are, are not taking it well. I'm always quite uh, keen to, to separate the two a little bit. Um, they didn't do well in Moscow, which was obviously, uh, you know, that's a very, very important stronghold for them. They used to have uh, United Russia, the ruling party, Putin's party, used to have uh, 40. And now uh, they only won 25 of Moscow City's uh, 
Duma. Um, and a lot of the candidates, the United Russia candidates, weren't even running necessarily under United Russia. They were running as independents. Um, and I saw kind a, of... A, a ruse which I'm not sure fooled that many voters. No, it didn't. And particularly <laughs> as a lot of protesters and a lot of opposition candidates actually went round uh, Moscow that weekend and were putting stickers on United Russia <laughs> candidates' photos, you know, just so everyone kind of got the message. Um, so they haven't done well. And, you know, this will put them in a, in a sticky situation, um, not only because Putin's popularity is very low. We talk about that a lot. Um, it's been a difficult year. Uh, pension reforms didn't go very badly. There's economic stagnation. Um, and, you know, I think this is going to put the Kremlin very much on edge before the 2021 parliamentary elections. Um, the ruling party is going to have to keep a majority here, um, either to kind of be able to make reforms to keep Putin in or at least to ensure his uh, a very sort of smooth transition, a.k.a. sort of putting some kind of puppet in who will essentially be uh, ruled by Putin like, like they have done sort of in uh, 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 Uzbekistan and, and, and those kind of states. So, yeah, I think they're worried. Uh, Melkin, is this uh, the rebuke that Putin seems to be interpreting it as, or someone close to him, as Page suggests? Because Moscow aside, United Russia did all right elsewhere in Russia, by and large. And also there is the fact that really almost nobody bothered to vote in Moscow. Yes, I mean, United Russia still holds well over, or just over 3,000 of the almost 4,000 parliamentary seats across the country. And it's got a huge majority in um, in the state Duma, um, it's it's a dent to its uh, you know potential possibilities. It's a dent to its confidence, but it's I wouldn't say it's the beginning of the end yet. Um, it it's def it definitely suggests that something might be afoot, and voters might now be smarter, and we'll see more protest votes. But it, it's not the beginning of the end of United Russia. Uh, Paige, the more recent development is these raids targeted at Alexei Navalny's infrastructure. Again, it's always that open question whether this order has come directly from Putin's desk or from the desk of somebody else in the Kremlin doing what they assume will be Putin's bidding. But this is not how you behave towards somebody you regard as an irrelevance and no threat and not a problem. Right. So they've basically run out of tricks, is I think how a lot of people are seeing this, um, this very heavy handed approach uh, in the raids. So uh, 140 offices and homes of activists in uh, over 40 cities um, have been raided. So those have been Navalny's supporters, volunteers for his anti-corruption fund. Um, and you even saw this kind of out of tricks situation in how they handled the protests leading up to these elections. Very, very heavy handed, um, unnecessary necessarily so. And that sort of, to me, seems like a reaction to a situation that they don't know how to control. Okay, we've got brute force, let's use that instead. This is the we have a hammer, therefore everything looks like a nail. Exactly. Um, And uh, just an interesting anecdote I saw about uh, the raids while we're talking about them. Um, Sergei Boyko, um, who was an independent candidate in Novosibirsk and is a Navalny supporter, um, there's a sort of video circulating of his specific raid on Twitter um, and the police came to his door and before he opened the door, he sent his hard drive via drone out of his window. (laughs) to his friend's house before he opened the door and his flat was raided. 
look it up. I mean, but the, seriously, these are the lengths that some people are going to, and it's and it's it's almost got a, like a Stasi-like feel as well. The way they're going about it. I mean, it's not only the Navalny so- uh, um, supporters, but it's their it's their parents and relatives and grandparents. I mean, this is this is quite serious. That right there, though, that anecdote about the activist sending his hard drive out of the building aboard a drone. Is that part or is that illustrative of what we're actually witnessing here, Melkin? You said earlier that this probably isn't the beginning of the end of Putin, and indeed it probably isn't. But is it the beginning of a new way of resisting maybe not just Vladimir Putin, but authoritarian regimes everywhere? Are we seeing people starting to adapt technology to uh, protest better than they might have done several years ago? I think certainly people are becoming much more savvy in how they vote, how they protest and how they gather themselves. But the issue is that you can be as technologically savvy as you want in Russia, but the corruption is systematic. Uh, You know, these arrests and raids that happen, they are technically legal. You know what I mean? The the government says, well, I've got a piece of paper that says you've sneezed on the street, which is illegal. Therefore, we're raiding your house and arresting you. And I I think it was Michael Ignatiev, the political analyst Mm. who talking about uh, Hungary, said the issue is that they make laws and it walks like a law, talks like law, but definitely isn't. But all the government has to do is say, look, we're acting in a legal manner. And Russia's doing very much the same thing. They're arresting people. They're saying, well, it's, it's all fair. You know, here is the law. We've done it. But and, you know, I saw a video the other day, Navalny posted, of um, a judge kicking a solicitor out of court because he was, pre- you know, protesting on behalf of his client who was an activist and was arrested. So you've got a solicitor being arrested and manhandled in, you know, in, in a courthouse and no one bats an eyelid because now this is normal. It's hyper normalization. Malcolm Charchoglian and Paige Reynolds, thank you both for joining us. Up next, commuter newspapers and why they have come off the rails. I wish to make it perfectly clear that Tom Hall, producer of today's episode, wrote that joke. Complaints may be directed to his email address, which can be found on Monocle's masthead. You are listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, and we turn now to the curious phenomenon of the commuter newspaper, of which there is one fewer in the world following this week's closure of Express. The Washington, D.C. commuter paper published these last 16 years by the Washington Post. The headline of the last edition was a pithy summation of the paper's problems. Hope you enjoy your stinking phones. The expansion of Wi-Fi access on DC's Metro Rail appears to have been the thing which finished the Express off. But could commuter papers get back on track? That one was me. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's Ben Ryland. Um, ben, the Express, was it always a weird idea given that it was published by the Washington Post and the Washington Post was essentially giving away a free rival to itself? I don't know about that. I, I I think there people tend to view commuter papers in a very very different genre to the you know your proper chunky weekday newspaper. I, I tend to think they are viewed quite differently. A, a commuter paper generally to me is something you pick up on your way home. Uh, you 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 browse through it for something to do while you're strictly while you're commuting from one place to another. That's why you generally expect them to be quite slim. The stories are much shorter. You wouldn't go to a commuter paper expecting to there to be some sort of big long read. 
read about, you know, what's mm. happening in in foreign policy. They're much more digestible. So I, I'm not sure about that. I, I do think it's quite a shame. Interesting though, though uh, Andrew, with all of your uh, little witticisms here, uh, it. <laughs> uh, are, are you building up to another rail track something <laughs> pun? There. Not my foray, I'm afraid. I'd be a terrible headline writer. But Express was known for its witty covers, uh, and of course, being from the Washington Post, they did have a bigger newsroom to rely on. Uh, so they could do some heavy hitting journalism as well, which is something quite different that can be said to a lot of for a lot of other uh, commuter papers. It's a it is a shame to see it go, and it must also be said the 20 journalists who were working full time on Express have also been laid off. So there's 20 more journalists in Washington who are probably going to have a little bit of trouble finding finding work um, considering that, the state of things. That is never good news. And as fellow journalists, we must wish them all the best. But for the reasons the Express sums up in that pithy headline, hope you enjoy your stinking phones, especially as Wi-Fi becomes extended to underground systems, which in my view is something that should just be absolutely banished by force of law and is the beginning of the end of civilization. Why did I know you'd take that view on that? (laughs) But because of that, are commuter newspapers basically stuffed at this point? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this because you and I were chatting about this earlier in the day, Andrew, and we did remark that, you know, the commuter paper situation here in London seems to be quite healthy. You've got City AM, you've got the Metro, you've got the Evening Standard. Uh, these, like or like these newspapers or not... But we also these... have a huge underground network which doesn't have Wi-Fi. Exactly as I was getting to. that You have the Wi-Fi, uh, for those in London, they'll know this very well, you have the Wi-Fi at the stations, but you don't have Wi-Fi in the actual Cube. So generally, you know, you can't you can't use your phone, strictly speaking, uh, for anything really. So yeah, it does make it easier, I think, for papers to have some sort of reason for being. And, and not only that, you've got free magazines that are handed out as well. It does lend itself well to this old world of publishing, which was, of course, to give you stimulation when you didn't have anything else to do. It. I mean, yes, you probably will start to see these shut down. Melbourne got uh, some Wi-Fi in its underground train network uh, some years ago. Its commuter paper wound up in 2015. The same is said for Sydney and Brisbane as well. Uh, it's it's not good news. And I do have to say I will miss the commuter papers if they disappear completely because this is not a model you will see replicated online. It's not as if people are just going to say, as the Express has, has tongue-in-cheek pointed out, enjoy enjoy your phones. That's not going to be the same thing, is it? Because local news doesn't exist online, which is it just generally doesn't exist. You know, we it online has picked up a lot of the global stories. Uh, you can go to the online to read the New York Times, but if you're looking for something that's happening in your backyard and you don't live in one of these major cities, then you're not going to get that. And commuter papers, generally speaking, are quite good at picking up on that very, very localised voice. And that's why even when you had the MX, and it was a different version for, for Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, the differences were very, very striking. The MX mm. in Melbourne spoke with a Melburnian's voice, and as you know, a Sydney sider's voice is quite a different one indeed. Careful now. <laughs> they speak. They speak to their local audience, and you know, I'm not sure how that's going to be picked up by whatever online outlet replaces Express. It's a bit of a sad day. Uh, bring in Fernando Augusto Pacheco on this, who's also here and, of course, also presents Monocle's, Monocle 24's The Stack, uh, our regular program looking at the printed page. What do you think, Fernando? Is there a future for the commuter paper as we currently know it, or is it is its existence entirely dependent on there not being Wi-Fi on subways? 
Well, I hope there is a future, but you know we need you know uh, well-designed newspapers. We need nice supplements. I mean, I am not the biggest fan of the Evening Standard here in London, but I have to admit their weekly uh, magazine, Evening Standard, makes me leave my desk and go to Baker Street to pick up a copy every single Thursday, because it's quite enjoyable. I mean, the one that is out now is a special fashion issue, more than a hundred pages. So I think if you do it well and make sure you have the crosswalk words and, and all the news because Ben was saying this unfortunately is not replicated online local news I mean how are we going to know what's happening in our own city London mm. I mean we don't want, just want to hear about Brexit or about the Iran uh, deals with the US so I have to say I, I think it's interesting I, I share your sentiments on the evening standard if you it, I do like it. I don't love it. Uh, but if you compare it to some of the other typical commuter papers around the world, it does strike you as something quite different. And I, I have a theory that that is because it, it has a long history of being a proper newspaper that was around with before commuter papers were really a thing. And it has evolved into a commuter paper. But, it, you know, that sort of thing, it would be quite sad to, to see that disappear. Well, I'll keep you both here in the studio, but we will move on to another subject. Finally, on the show today, uh, we wanted to talk to Fernando about some cultural finds for the weekend, including the first print edition of the relaunch of The Face. This was a magazine which, of course, launched in 1980, closed in 2004, and in between times established itself as a preeminent cultural arbiter. Fifteen years later, Neville Brody's distinctive masthead re-adorns newsstands, but will anybody be reading. Um, Fernando, first of all, you can't possibly be old enough to remember the face the first time. I'm so old that I wrote for it, but you can't possibly remember it as a reader. Well, I bought actually the last issue, which I believe was from 2004, uh, with Giselle Bündchen on the cover. So I think I was a very... <laughs> late adopter. <laughs> yeah, very late. Basically, when I discovered the face, it closed down, in a way. But I did. I did. I did remember buying a copy in Brazil, actually, because he had this fame around the world. I think it was, uh, you know, even though it was, uh, you know, a UK publication, uh, he had this kind of, you know, everything on the face was cool. I mean, you were cool. No, I, 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 I literally <laughs> never was. Um, what do you make of the new edition, though? It, it is quite, it, it's hefty. It's it's hefty and it's going to be a quarterly. Uh, I mean, I have it here. It's, it looks, you know, quite similar, the logo. It, I'm glad they didn't play around too much. You couldn't uh, really play it. around with the logo. And, and you know you know what? They have four superstars uh, at the court. They have four different covers. Rosalia, Harry Styles, Tyler the Creator and Dua Lipa. I mean, and I was like, oh, okay, are they going to be just kind of a fashion title? Are they losing? the kind of, you know, this uh, the face coolness in a way. But then you look at the tagline on the bottom, I mean, they didn't lose that. Look at that. Coronation Street, clubbing in Barcelona, Tiger Rescues, and Saxon Acid. So, I mean, there's plenty. <laughs> so, I mean... Th it, those sound like strap lines from the face in the 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah. re regrettably, none of the stories I used to write for it. But, <laughs> but, but do, you, do you think, though, that the name does still mean anything to people who never actually read the magazine? That's what interests me about this, because what they are aiming at is not people who read or indeed wrote for the face the first time those names you have just mentioned mean almost zero to somebody of my generation so clearly they're hoping that that cachet has endured aren't they and i think it did and i spoke to the art director of the face for the stack tomorrow a little uh, promo here and he told me because one of the covers is harry styles a former one direction he said that the fans are obsessed i mean i think that the issue with him on the cover it's practically sold out at the moment so i mean they chose very well who is going to be on the cover 
over and how to attract this young market. Fernando, I have a question for you because I've often wondered why the attempts that were made over the years to revive Life magazine never seemed to work. And I look at a magazine like Life and think, oh, it represents this this beautiful time, uh, I suppose mid-century sophistication. And it feels like that sort of title would be ripe for a refresh. But as Andrew was hinting at, you would need to aim it towards people that didn't know about, that, that, that weren't reading the original life. So it does make you wonder, like, what kind of capital does a brand like that have to, to refresh it? If you look at the revivals of television series, they usually try to revive themselves and aim towards a new audience. What does it take to successfully revive an old brand? I think any magazine can can be survived. Of course, you need the new market. But, but Ben, the only difference here, for if they did it with the face, If you come back, you need to become even glossier and bigger than usual because that's where magazines are heading to. Okay, we need to talk very finally and very briefly about Succession, which is a TV series I know many people in this building are extremely excited by. Fernando. Well, I'm very much excited, and the man sitting in front of me, Ben, was the one who recommended that. It was I. It was I. It's just a fantastic series about the Roy family. Uh, Logan Roy, he's like a Rupert Murdoch character, and he has to choose a successor among his kids. Of course, he loves power, and 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 everybody backstab everyone, and and mm. that's enjoyable. And I love watching series of billionaires. It's more fun. <laughs> it's more fun than any others. I mean, hey, what do you see appeal of that, Ben? Is it just that you can tune in and think, "Hey, these rich people are as miserable as I am"? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it's very difficult tone to strike, though, because the way that the reason Succession is so enjoyable to watch is because they are terrible people, but you somehow care for them at the same time. And that's a hard cle- thing to pull it's off. It's very, very difficult. The cleverness of the writing, it just bowls me over every episode I watch. But there is something to be said about wanting to know the darker secrets of the media world. We do have Succession and we have uh, the uh, the loudest voice on at the same time. Uh, those are two series about vaguely similar media worlds. And then don't forget Bombshell coming out very, very soon with Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson. It's going to be a bit of a bombshell, I might say. <laughs> that is all we have time for today. Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both for joining us. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marco Sippi. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening and have a terrific weekend. Music.